Hey everybody, welcome to Wonked. My name is Ricky Soto, uh, and I'm joined today with Rachel. Say hi, Rachel. Hey guys, I'm Rachel, and I'm from Ohio. And then Katie. Hi, I'm Katie Okumu. Um, I'm from Kentucky. And my name is Ricky Soto, and I'm from San Diego, California. But let me just run everyone through the little outline, I guess, of what we're going to touch on today. So we'll start with... Um, talking about the war on drugs and um, how that is a, a prelude kind of to mass incarceration and um, the, particularly the sentencing laws surrounding the war on drugs, but also the political motivations and history behind the war on drugs. And then we'll also talk about the disparity in sentencing um, in the enforcement of certain laws, the statutory disparity in um Mandatory sentencing for uh, crimes that are either committed or prosecuted disproportionately um, against minorities, and Katie will primarily focus on that. And then finally, um, in our first segment, we'll talk about what mandatory minimums are, um, how they manifest themselves and exacerbate uh, racial disparities as well as drive um, the massive amount of incarceration that we have in the United States. And then we'll take a short musical interlude in which, or following which, we'll talk about um, the structure of the prison system in the United States, uh, private prisons as well as public system or prisons, um, the conditions in prisons today, and then um, what that looks like on an international comparison. And then finally, uh, recidivism rates, as well as talking about the difference between prisons for punishment and prison, like just the I guess the philosophical concept of prisons for punishment versus prisons for rehabilitation and um, putting people back into society. And then finally, we'll be joined by Naomi Vickers. Um, she's a member of HOPE, which is a organization on campus advocating for criminal justice reform and education um, for prisoners that are currently incarcerated. So we'll talk to her, get her some of her views on um, the prison system as well as talk about the advocacy of HOPE. I guess with, without holding off any longer, we can kind of get into our first segment. Um, so I, I think it's important, and we'll cover this, we'll each cover this in our sections, but I, I think it's important to always understand the history behind these things because, um, you know, like sometimes we'll have bad policies that will have purely good intentions behind them, but a lot of times we miss the intentionality behind policies or the, um, the, the the true meaning behind them. And that sets a narrative, this this false meaning, this is a false narrative that carries through um, throughout the general populace and then serves as a reinforcing mechanism for bad policy or bad laws. And I think the, the first example and something that's uh, particularly personal to me is uh, the... Uh, Controlled Substance Act and the Comprehensive, uh, the, the War on Drugs. And uh, the reason it's, it's it's personal to me is not only because of the racial disparities which were intentional in uh, the creation of the War on Drugs under the Nixon administration, but also because um, I, th- I, I think fundamentally it's a, it's a civil liberties issue. People should be able to use something, particularly something that's not as bad as like a substance such as alcohol, recreationally or um, medically, so that you know, rather than criminalizing these people, we uh, we can move to a system in which 
they could freely use it and not worry about having the police uh, raid their home. But I'll just quickly talk about the Controlled Substances Act and how it's structured, and then we can kind of get into a little conversation about it. But basically, um, it was passed in the Comprehensive Drug Abuse uh, Prevention and Control Act of 1970, and the Controlled Substances Act is a subsection of that. Um, I want to read a, a, a quote from John Ehrlichman, who is, uh, was a Nixon staffer, uh, an advisor, and w- was actually put in prison for the, uh, the Watergate scandal. But um, this will, I mean, I think this really, this was a, a quote from like, like 1994 um, after he was out of prison, after he was out of politics, and um, he was just kind of saying whatever he wanted. And he spoke to the underlying reasons behind uh, the, the war on drugs. So Erlkman said the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You under uh, you understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to either be against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt communities, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So I, I, I mean, obviously, like, obviously this goes to the intentionality behind uh, the, the passage of, uh, or the start of the war on drugs and the passage of the Controlled Substances Act, but it, it's, it's even more explicit when we actually break down what the act is. So essentially it breaks all drugs on the, uh, the Controlled Substances Act list into five schedules, ranging from Schedule 1 to Schedule 5. Um, which is a varying degrees of both uh, penalization, though penalization isn't strictly um, statutorily tied to these schedules, but it it's supposed to denote how safe a drug is and also if it has like a possible medical use. So, for example, Schedule One drugs, uh, the drug or other substance has uh, high potential for abuse. The drug or other substance has no currently accepted medical use in treatment in the United States. There is a lack of accepted safety for use of this drug or other substance under medical supervision. Um, so this includes drugs like weed, um, acid, DMT, heroin, molly, uh, mushrooms, and peyote. Um, and what what's interesting is again, he had, uh, Earl Quinn had already associated weed with. Uh, the hippie community and heroin with the black community. And then if you go to like schedule two drugs, you have amphetamines like Adderall, Vyvanse, uh, PCP, oxycodone. Um, funny enough, you have fentanyl as a schedule two drug, which I believe is like a hundred times more powerful than, than morphine and heroin's like twice as powerful as morphine. So there's, I mean, there's, there's clearly a, a, a disparity there. And a lot of these disparities break down, um, to race, I mean, it's just absolutely preposterous that like weed ha- is like an incredibly addictive gateway drug that like just destroys people's lives. I mean, this is just, frankly, it's it's borne out by empirics, right? I mean, for all you weed smokers out there, like you know for a fact that like this is this, you don't necessarily have your life ruined by uh, by smoking weed and. I kind of wanted to get your feedback on this, and we'll get into the sentencing of it later, as well as um, 
uh, disparities in arrest rates and sentencing. But I mean, because this, this act and the war on drugs more broadly is, is essential to to understanding um, a huge portion of this debate. What any thoughts? Like initial thoughts, guys. No initial thoughts? None? So if no initial thoughts, then uh, I guess in that case, Katie, do you want to kind of go into the disparity? Because I guess that is not the initial thought, but that's the consequence of the of the war on drugs and, and sentencing more broadly. But do you, I mean, do you want to talk mm-hmm. about uh, the, the racial disparity? Yeah, yeah. I think these two things are, are connected with a lot of consequence. Um, I think it's important to discuss racial disparities when it comes to the criminalization of drugs at this point, um, starting with marijuana. Um, so in a report by the Drug Policy Alliance from January 2018, um, a drop in marijuana arrests in legal pot states was documented um, pretty extensively. Um, and this report showcased the effect of marijuana legalization um, in several states. Um, And I think that advocates of marijuana legalization are likely to celebrate the results of this report, um, but there are still a lot of inconsistencies present. Um, So true, arrests have declined for all racial groups since legalization, but that hasn't halted racial disparities. Mm -hmm. Um, So despite the fact that there is not much evidence that black people specifically um, consume marijuana with greater frequency than white people do, black Americans are arrested for marijuana possession far more frequently than whites. And I think a good example of this um, is Washington, D.C., where marijuana was decriminalized in 2014. Um, So for possession, arrest rates between 2010 and 2016 dropped by more than 99% across the board. Um, But racial disparities still existed. So black people were arrested for possession at a rate of 8 per 100,000 people in 2016, uh, while white people were arrested at a rate of 2 per 100,000. I think these findings are important. because they show the persistence of racial disparities in the criminal justice system, uh, largely. Um, and I think it's complicated, right? Because if the disparity is not explained by differences in black and white marijuana use rates, um, um, because we know um, by surveys that there, there isn't a large disparity there, one yeah. might explain them by individual racial biases among enforcers of the law um, and within uh, the, 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 the court system. Yeah. Um, so one could also discuss the inequality of drug sentencing, Um, with other substances. Um, For example, we know that crack um, carried a hundred times greater sentence uh, than cocaine during the Clinton administration, even though it was largely the same substance (laughs) as cocaine, right? The only difference was that crack cocaine was more prevalent in low-income communities of color, while cocaine was primarily utilized by wealthier white-color workers. Um, And I don't think that white is an insignificant term here either. Um, So... Although the moment academically referred to as the war on drugs, um, which we, we I, I think we've mentioned, has theoretically ended, um, we're still dealing with issues of individual racial bias uh, that have complex roots and um, don't seemingly have straightforward solutions. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's I think the solution aspect is something that uh, we'll get into um, um, in the next next segment. Yeah. 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 I mean, any thoughts? Yeah. I I think. Yeah. I think it's really again. I think it's really important that this the, the post decriminalization because uh, yeah. it 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 does highlight um, and like just for context uh, for people like why if it's been decriminalized why would people even still be getting arrested for it? It could have to do with um, so like I know like in California there's a uh, 
a certain amount of weed you can have on you, even if it's it's like legal recreational weed that you purchase, right? So mm-hmm. I think it's some amount of grams or like ounces that you're allowed to have before as a person for personal use before it's uh it's illegal so i mean it could it could result from arrest like that um but or i think also use in public i think is another another thing um Mm. something interesting that i was reading was also since tying this into poverty since like Mm. african-americans and latinos um coming from poorer backgrounds just statistically uh are more likely to use uh marijuana like outside mm. of the house like yeah like physically outside of the house mm-hmm. um rather than white people who are more likely to use it inside um this is another result of like uh, a, a racial disparity that that comes i mean it, it, it's not like necessarily direct racism if that was everything but at the same time like it's ra- it's statutory racism racism in the sense that like it's not it's tying like a white cultural practice to being the codified legal legal norm yeah. um well yeah. but it's circumstantial inequality um it's wrapped up in the context of um as you said um individuals of color um predominantly coming from um um a, d- a different socioeconomic background yeah um than yeah. non-individuals of color so yeah i think that that's good context yeah rachel anything on this before we um yeah i mean i guess i can bring this up now since we're already talking about it but i think it's also um important to look at like the differences like from state to state uh when talking about the decriminalization of marijuana yeah and then and tying that in as well with um you know, the racism involved with these sentencing. But the other day um, I saw this article, I think it was by Vogue when they were talking about um, in California, how like weed is the new fitness thing. And it was an article showing a bunch of white women doing yoga and like smoking marijuana. And um, it was kind of upsetting because, you know, for white people now, you know, marijuana is, um, the new fitness trend and for you know minority communities they're being put in jail and you know criminalized for weed which is just ridiculous no yeah i mean it that i think that's definitely i mean another another place before we move on to the mandatory minimums another place where you really see this i think is the opioid crisis right where you have like when when quote like crack cocaine was a an african-american problem like air quotes right um there was like heavy crackdown heavy criminalization like you even like you still see this i remember during the i think it was during the general election uh this past cycle but when some like black lives matter protesters were protesting bill clinton and um for the crime bill and then also um his the harsher sentences he would impose on, on certain things. And his response was in a fit of anger, it seemed, but like, you know, these people were destroying your communities too. Whereas like when the epidemic on this, uh, on this drug side comes in the form of, of, of a corporate epidemic, right. Of something that's induced by a corporate entity, um, chiefly the pharmaceutical companies in this in this instance and then also um, at the same time something that affects white people um 
it's a public health crisis, right? And then we t- we take a completely different approach. I st- I still think there is a stigma uh, a stigmatization uh, around opioid uh, usage, and and now it's kind of transition transitioned into a a heroin problem. But um, at the at the same time, I think the stigmatization that can't comes around maybe with white people is like oh these are just like lesser people or morally de- deficient people whereas like when it when it's an african-american or latino it's like these are bad people these are evil people these are they're trying to destroy a community um and i i think that's it's a good case study in uh different approaches based on the racial makeup of of who's affected but yeah uh, do you want to get into? Do you want to talk about mandatory minimums, Rachel, and then mm-hmm. also like, like what they are, where they yeah. exist, stuff like that? Yeah. Um. So I'll just give a really quick definition of um, mandatory minimums, and uh, so that term refers to a federal criminal statute that um, requires that a person serves a specified minimum term of imprisonment for a certain conviction. Um, the mandatory minimum penalties will vary in length. Um, anything from two years for aggravated identity theft to life in prison for certain drug trafficking offenses. And um, I'll just give a really brief history of how mandatory minimums have come about. So Congress um, actually started passing um, some laws regarding mandatory minimums beginning in 1951, but those became really unpopular and were repealed (laughs) in the 1960s. Um, But then mandatory minimums as we know them today – Uh, started up again in um, the 1980s. Um, It started with the, um, in 1986, when Reagan signed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. Um, And so the main result of this was the creation of mandatory minimum sentences, um, which overwhelmingly affected uh, minority uh, communities. So like Katie was saying earlier about crack cocaine, uh, the sentencing like, you would need a hundred times more of powder cocaine to be sentenced for the same amount of time. Um, you also got from Bill Clinton the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, um, which is really known for uh, the three strikes law. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then so following that, there's been some softening Um on uh, crime. I mean, in 2014, Rick Perry came out in favor of decriminalizing small amounts of marijuana. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so, uh, and Obama has um, kind of tried to walk back some of these um, harsher laws. Um, And then, uh, so, there's really three, I guess, categories in which... um, a mandatory minimum could be triggered. So the first one is um, that it's triggered by offensive characteristics or elements of the offensive conviction. So that's best exemplified by drug offenses. Um, so, for example, someone would um, a mandatory minimum penalty would be triggered if um, the characteristics of the case include manufacturing, trafficking. Uh, distributing of particular types of drugs above a specified threshold. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one is penalties triggered by reference to another underlying offense. Um, so basically, um, that would be something like if someone uses a firearm when they're carrying out an offense, okay. uh, something like that. And then very quickly, the third one is uh, 
the penalty would be triggered by an offender's criminal history. So that's kind of the three strikes law. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's pretty quick history of mandatory minimums. They um, were kind of born out of uh, racist roots, um, overwhelmingly affect minority communities. Yeah. And yeah, I, I I think the, um, I mean, like not only do they, do they overwhelmingly, um, like affect minority communities, but I think it, it's also, um, like, again, like the, you, you mentioned the crack cocaine disparity, um, or the disparity between, um, crack cocaine and powder cocaine, um, I think another thing, though, to to bring up kind of with the mandatory minimum discussion is, like, prosecutorial discretion and, Mm -hmm. like, how, you know, there might – so, uh, interestingly enough, there – since, like, the 90s, the amount of people that have been sentenced under mandatory minimum laws has, like, as a percentage of sentencings, at least on the federal level, has not changed. It's been, uh, I believe, around steady, like, 20% or so. And um, the people that are prosecuted under it, or at least commit offenses that are able, that someone could prosecute um, one under a mandatory minimum law. Uh, I believe it's around thirty-five percent uh, steadily. So I mean, what like during the Obama administration, um, Eric Holder, I know, um, took a, a much more lax approach towards um, some specific drug laws um and and prosecuting certain or at least he mandated that those below him take a a a much more lax approach to specific um sentencing though i i think they maybe could have done a better job i particularly like i think obama did a really towards the end of his administration he did like a bunch of pardons and uh um towards the very end for like non-violent um drug offenders I usually drug use, but I, there was also, I think, some distri- uh, least intent to distribute um, in there as well. And, um, I mean, like, changed people's lives. I mean, these are people that were locked up for, like, decades and, you know, were finally able to get out because, not because of, um, you know, like, they served their time, but because literally the President of the United States had to pardon them. And um, when it comes to the prosecutor, you know, like the in the case of the federal government, the attorney general of the United mm-hmm. States, but even like local governments and state governments, um, someone who has been doing a particularly good job of um, focusing on reform is the uh, district attorney of Philadelphia. So he's this new progressive uh, DA who was elected not too long ago. Um he was like an R Revolution endorsed candidate, very, very progressive. Um, but he just sent like recently just sent out a memo asking that. Um, so I think he said marijuana offenses like we're just not going to prosecute those crimes, which is like super dope. Like that's <laughs> that's like awesome, um, which um, ascent, I mean, it, it's like de facto legalization. Right. So that means like. If a city official or a municipal cop catches you with something, they may arrest you for it, but the actual people that are supposed to charge you for it won't charge you with any crime. Um, also focusing on like smaller amounts of theft and asking that like one asks for the minimum sentence possible. Um, 
having his DAs add up the cost of like the actual like dollar cost of um like what I think it was like prison terms like for the city. Um so just a lot of progressive um reforms in his uh in this memo that got sent out to his depart or to his office. Um and prosecutors can make a difference while there's like a lot of work that needs to be done on the legal side and pushing legislation through that gets rid of these um, laws that are either uh, statutorily like biased or specifically targeted at minority communities. One can also see a, a world in which uh, uh, prosecutors take the lead on this and um, stop charging people for things that they, or at least stop enforcing um, certain laws that carry like mandatory minimums and maybe charging them under smaller, pettier crimes just so that people aren't forced into prison um, unduly. But I think I, I want to throw it back to you guys just quickly for a discussion about, um, and we'll get into this in the, the, the segment where we talk about the prison system in general, but like I think mandatory minimums are an ex- and, and like the three strikes law are an example of like a, a punitive approach versus a rehabilitative approach right um in that like you're when you when you're saying there's a minimum sentence you're not giving the judge or the prosecutor like discretion really to um to say you know i think to rehabilitate this person they would only need x amount of years but you're saying like no this person has to serve this minimum amount of years because essentially they did something that was morally wrong and um I, I, again, I want to throw it back to you guys and get your thoughts on that, but also on punitive versus rehabilitative. So, yeah. So I think I think the three strikes law um, operates under the assumption that um, uh, these forms of laws have a deterrent effect on violent crime, yeah. and that is not necessarily true, um, right? Um, you know, most violent crimes aren't premeditated. They're committed in anger, like in the heat of passion um, or under the influence of, of, of other things. Um, so I th- the idea that a life sentence um, is, is, um, is not going to stop people who are acting impulsively um, without, th- without thought um, uh, might not be the case. Um, I also think that um, uh, it, 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 is, it is possibly true that repeat offenders don't consider the penalties they face. Um, before um, before acting, um, because they might not necessarily anticipate getting caught in the act. Um, yeah. You know, the mm-hmm. a, a, the ACLU reports um, from the American Bar Association that um, out of the approximately 34 million serious crimes committed each year um, in the U.S., only three million um, result um, in arrests. So, you know, individuals in the moment are not um, um, acting under the assumption that they're going to be caught. And um, I think this is this is important when discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, the deterrent effect yeah. Yeah. of these laws. Yeah, I mean, I think it should also be pointed out that I think rehabilitating prisoners is in everyone's best interest. Uh, the majority of people that go into the penal system will at some point come back out yeah. into society. So making sure that um, we're not, you know, uh, making sure that we, you know, make them... Um, they're ready to and participate. Do, yeah, that they're ready to participate. And I think other countries have um, a much better model of rehabilitation than we do. It's kind of an understatement. Yeah, um, yeah and I, I think 
uh, constitutionally, we operate under this idea that the punishment will fit the crime, right, in our yeah. in our system. And I think that the three, three strikes um, uh, proposal or other other um, other laws um, uh, depart sharply from this idea. Right, because they don't necessarily take into consideration the gravity of offense um, from moment to moment. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think this is also an important point. I think one other thing, like it's almost um, like states. States, there's a. I think there's only two states in the union. I think one, like Vermont, and another state that allow felons to vote while in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a lot of other countries, like. If I'm correct, I believe it's Norway, and we'll we'll get into like the actual prison system later. But Norway lets like they they hold the the parliamentary elections will hold debates in a prison and like take questions from prisoners. Um, so I mean, there's this broader like disenfranchisement of not only like voting rights but other rights as well um, of prisoners that just goes to like this incredibly like punitive approach um in the united states to to sentencing and to uh to how we um enact our laws i mean and the u.s has been on the cutting edge of some legal innovations like um actually so like women's um like i I know like violence against women laws and like uh anti-rape laws like sentencing the the united states was particularly innovative on this front um back in like the 1800s and then like the early 1900s but since then you know we've we've kind of fallen behind the pack so to speak at least in the western world um and i i think it that'll kind of easily transition us into a a a question about the prison system in general and what is the state of u.s prisons um what is like you know, how do prisoners live in the United States and how is that compared to other countries uh, around the globe, particularly Western countries? I, I don't think we're trying to compare uh, U.S. prisons to gulags and say that they're <laughs> they're better. Like, don't worry about that because um, that's not exactly the standard we would hopefully hold ourselves to. So um, we are going to indulge ourselves in a... Um, slight musical interlude to take a break but uh we'll be back with the next segment on um the state of prisons in the united states international comparison of both prison um conditions and recidivism rates and uh yeah hey everybody welcome back to the pod um so in this segment uh, we're going to talk about the prison system in general um, and recidivism rates, international comparisons, and then also like what are private prisons. Um, they're not unique to the United States, but they are like uniquely large in the United States, uh, particularly because of how large our um, our prison system is. So I, I think we'll, we'll talk about private prisons and then we'll talk about more in general, like the actual like numbers on how many people are in prisons in general. But um, do, do either of you guys want to start us off with the private prison explainer? What is a private prison? Um, what do they do? Um, where are they available? And then also, like, uh, I guess what's wrong with the incentive structure? Because that's really, I mean, that's part of it, right? Like, it's not just that, like, 
Okay, I'll start. Okay. Let me let me rewind. Start? Yeah, can we rewind and start mm-hmm. over? And can you, um, do Let's rewind. Okay. Hey everybody, welcome back to Wonked, a policy pod. In this segment, we're going to be talking about um, the state of America's prison system. So we're going to be talking about private prisons, um, just like an explainer on what they are, why they're bad. Um, and then also we'll get into a, a, a larger um, discussion about the prison population, um, what you know, how are prisoners treated in the United States, and then also um, compare that to other international uh, Western systems of uh, prisons and jails, and then on top of that, um, we'll finally talk about recidivism rates because I think this kind of goes to the the broader broader point that at least us as Democrats are making is that you know we want to focus on making sure people are able to re-enter society as productive um, citizens rather than people that are just going to be funneled back into the system and perpetuate this um, this cycle, but. So what is a private prison? Uh, it's kind of the explanations in the name, but it's a it's a system or it's a prison that's not directly owned by the uh, the government. So most um, you know states or the federal government will own prisons, right? And they'll operate them completely. That means that all employees are employees of the government. They get an, uh, a government pension whether that's on a state or federal level, if they're unionized, they're public, uh, it's a public union. So like, for example, in California, there's a, a prisons guard union, I believe, and that is a public union. They get a pension from the state government, etc. Um, a private prison's the opposite. It's owned by a, a company and it's contracted by a state or fe- uh, the federal government to manage um a certain amount of prisoners but i think there's a couple there's a couple things that are uniquely bad about private systems or private prisons so like one of the things is they'll routinely skimp on the like the necessities of of life so there's cases like particularly in like louisiana um which is like a notorious violator of just like (laughs) general rights for prisoners like in general but like also particularly in private prisons um but where like medical care will not be administered um when it's necessary and prisoners will die or um result in more serious like a, a more serious progression of an ailment that they might have also um this happens with food where they don't they don't feed the prisoners uh like they're what they're expected or what they would receive in in a, a public prison um, the conditions are usually worse. Um, an- another thing that's really unique about private prisons is that usually when the state signs a contract with the uh, with a, a prison contractor, you know that, that will, that'll own this prison, they actually like agree to pay for X percentage of beds, even if these beds aren't full. So like. Let's just say I'm the state of Arizona. I signed this contract, right? I am guaranteeing that I will be paying for 90% of the beds that we've agreed to contract out to this private prison. Let's just say I want like a prison with 100 beds. I will pay for 90, uh, as if 90 prisoners were there, even if zero prisoners are in the prison at that time. So this gives the state an incentive to put more people in the prison because 
they want to be getting, I guess, their bang for their buck in that they they want people filling those beds because they'll have to pay for them anyways. And um, th- this is also just like uh, essentially a corporate giveaway, particularly like, again, it doesn't incentivize a state to be lowering sentencing laws if it's already entered into these contracts with um, these private prisons. Also, I think an- another thing that's also important is like, what is a prison... I mean, what ideally would a prison do? It would help people reenter society. And when you have a, a prison that profits off of people being put in prison, what incentives do they have to rehabilitate uh, people? Katie, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I, I just wanted to note note a bit of history, a recent history, um, in the sense that the Obama administration in August 2016 um, uh, announced the plan of a gradual phase out of private prisons. Um, um, by letting contracts expire or scaling uh, scaling things back, um, and Donald Trump is um, in the current administration um, is intent to reverse um, these policies. Currently, there are eleven private prisons um, uh, in contract, um, and most of them house um, immigrants um, who have been convicted yeah. of crimes um, um, in the U.S. Um, they're owned by um, um, largely by by two corporations, Core Civic. Um, NGO group, um, and these two organizations gave two hundred fifty thousand dollars and four hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, respectively, to President Donald Trump's campaign um, and his inauguration. Um, and I don't think that this is inconsequential um, in the Trump administration's intent um, to reverse these policies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think we can also talk about um, the idea that um, supporters of private prisons um, and privatization of, often say. Um, that um, um, the that the government can save money through privatization, yeah. and the evidence for this is really mixed, right? In fact, there are, I, th- I believe there are some instances where private prisons um, cost more, um, um, and also in the long term, in terms of um, individuals ret- um, uh, uh, re- being put back in the system, in the yeah. long term, um, costs um, the U.S. government more um, because there is no uh, factor of rehabilitation yeah. or a smaller factor of rehabilitation. Um, um, in, in this case. Yeah. So, yeah. I, 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 yeah. Um, well, just kind of going off of what you said that um, I, I don't think that private prisons are cheaper because they're continually lobbying, um, you know, maybe against um, more rehabilitative laws, stuff like that. So, um, and they're, they want people to keep come to, uh, to be, coming back to prison um, after they leave. And, you know, it um, costs approximately $31,307 per year um, to, um, you know, pay for um, just one inmate. And so I think ultimately in the long run, having private prisons is far more expensive than it would be to rehabilitate them. Yeah. I I think this goes to, like, I mean, this is, like, a broader, like, Republican neoliberal like argument for a lot of things like oh yeah like privatization will totally help incentivize like innovation and we're gonna reduce costs but like i mean this is like this the crap they put out there for like you know like health the healthcare system too and a lot of other i mean it's just like not true that like the the private sector is always either more efficient at um delivering um services or, or or innovation also another thing what do you know efficiency or innovation matter 
if we're talking about lives, so obviously in this case, like we are talking about it is more efficient for the government um, to manage it directly, but at the same time, like, you know, I, I wouldn't mind having a slightly less efficient system if we're talking about, like, let's just say healthcare hypothetically, um, if it meant that, like, everyone could have, you know, an adequate coverage. But, like, mm-hmm. this is, like, the difference between a, you know, amoral um, focus on, like, some some arbitrary distinction, like efficiency and and, like, what really matters, which is it's people. But I, I think from this, you know, from this, like, focus on private prisons, we can kind of come out to, like, the, the broader context and, like, what is that? So the U.S. prison population is a little over, like, it's a little under 2.5 million, I believe. Um, again, this is around one-fourth of the global prison population, even though we have around, I believe, one-twentieth of the global population in general, um, we're like the second highest, uh, per capita prison or nation with, we have the second highest rate per capita of, uh, incarceration, uh, behind like some island nation, I believe in Africa. Um, that, so, I mean, like, this is <laughs> clearly something like went wrong, like, right. I mean, like yeah. the, uh, the U S is, not, this is not, you know, it's something that we should strive for. And it, it doesn't denote that like we have, you know, or either particularly good at something like getting all the bad guys or um, particularly, uh, you know, just efficient at uh, what we're doing. Or this is, I think this is really reflects poorly that, you know, like we're like ahead of Russia and like a, a lot of other countries that have way, you know, just war systems and also, um, you know, like uh, laws that pres- or sketchy laws that presumably would, allow them to put whoever they want in prison anyways, um, that we have a systematic approach. Um, I think you, you had mentioned the, the, the private prison corruption, um, or not the corruption, but like the perceived corruption, Katie, um, which was interesting, but you also mentioned the, the use of private prisons for detention centers and and immigration. I just want to say before we move on again to the, the broader prison system, this is um like a, a whole separate issue that's kind of like like developed as of late where there's cuz cuz the immigration the immigration courts are not funded by they're like funded by a separate entity than like the normal like all other court funding is is um provided for in the budget so they they usually don't get like boosts in like their budget so they there's a huge backlog of of deportation cases and so you have these private prisons or private uh, detention centers really that have developed out of this um, and have been contracted by the federal government to manage these large um, populations of undocumented immigrants and it's it's a whole nother issue um, of people being treated particularly inhumanely especially when a lot of these people were just looking for a better better life for their family or their, their children or to, to, to earn a decent wage or have been here for a long time and are recently getting deported uh, right now. But um, I, I think now we can maybe move on to uh, the, the broader system, like how are American uh, prisoners treated versus other countries? Um, one thing I want to note before handing it uh, off to uh, Katie and Rachel is that 
to dovetail off of the the large prison, like the sheer amount of prisons we have, um, this has already been deemed unconstitutional by the, the the Supreme Court. So, like in California, we had such bad overcrowding that the um, I can't remember if it was our state court or state Supreme Court, but I, th- I think it was the federal Supreme Court that was like, you just got to start releasing people because you have too many people in prison and these are you know, overcrowded and we were considering building more prisons. And uh, they said, no, like, just start releasing people. Uh, I think they even gave it like a number and said, you know, figure out who you want to get a, you know, released, but you got to let this many people out of jail. Um, so, I mean... Already, the overcrowding just itself is considered uh, cruel and unusual punishment, so it's therefore unconstitutional. But um, do you, one of you guys want to talk about um, recidivism, but also like the conditions in in American prisons versus, and also the approach that prison uh, guards and wardens take in this country versus other countries? Um, okay, yeah, I can. Um... Really quick, just, I guess, start by talking about um, overcrowding and kind of the cost of it. Um, So it would be so much cheaper for the U.S. to um, fix its, um, the laws and the the sentencing laws um, and stuff like that um, instead of having these overcrowded prisons. Um, Just one example, uh, Colorado they fixed um, their sentencing laws that were associated with parole violations, and I think they saved over $4.5 million in, like, the first year. Um, So um, it's it's not only morally, like, imperative that we fix this overcrowding issue, but it's also – it saves money, and that money could then be used to rehabilitate – the prisoners that um, aren't um, released um, as an effect of fixing these sentencing laws. Yeah. Um, I don't know if someone else wants to talk more about, like... I mean, if, if no one else wants to, I, I can talk about... So, if you guys haven't seen, um, I believe the documentary is Where to Invade Next... But it's 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 a Michael oh, Moore document. That. It's super it's, good. It's great. Um, it's super quirky. It's a Michael Moore documentary. Like, <laughs> what would you expect? But it's um, I, I believe it covers the Norwegian prison system in, in particular. But there's just a different approach that they take in in how they treat their prisoners and and how they interact with their prisoners. So like, um, even in like in the United States, like. Even low security prisons are um, still like you're, you know you you have a cell or like some kind of room. It's generally a cell. It's pretty sparse. Um, you might have a you might have someone else you're living with, like a cellmate, and uh, generally there you know there might be some reentry programs you can participate in, but generally you will um, you will just live in that cell. Do maybe some yard time and reading time, maybe work a job at the prison, um, and then you'll be uh, released. But in you know Norway, generally the way that they have prisoners live is separate from society, but not like locked down. You have like generally like a house that you live in with, you know, like a, with a normal room. 
you have a kitchen and the prisoners cook for themselves. They, uh, in the Michael Moore documentary, they're specifically like on an island or just away from a city. There's one or two guards, you know, that kind of just stays out of everyone's hair. People self-regulate and you're treating these people like human beings, um, you know, with dignity, you know, saying like, yeah, you may have messed up, but like, I mean, I think in this case, like someone in this one prison in particular had like murdered somebody. Um, and you know, he was cooking, he had a knife. It wasn't a big deal. Like he was cutting carrots or whatever. Um, but like, it's amazing. Like when you, I mean, there are people like it's, this isn't a secret. Like there are people that are going to be serial offenders and that like there are people that either because of how they were raised or um, in the sense that like they never had uh, the proper resources to get, you know, educational attainment um, or uh, you know, were raised in a stable household or, uh, you know, a variety of factors might be serial uh, offenders. But at the same time, lots of people have just either messed up or got caught in a, you know, like, I mean, particularly with like marijuana usage, like, you know, most people do not plan like just because you're smoking weed does not mean like you're a bad person or you plan on uh, being a bad person or like you're, you're some drag on society. Um, and I mean, we see this with the recidivism rates. So um, what it's 2005, two year recidivism rate is 20 percent in Norway in 2005 to 2010 it was 36% in the in the United States. I, this might just be a federal level, but I mean like the approach definitely matters. Um and I mean we we see that across across the the country. Um yeah. thoughts? Um yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think that giving inmates um more of a I guess responsibility and more independence um, doesn't totally isolate them from society in the way that it works. And I think that's really important because a lot of times when um, people who are incarcerated are just kind of, I think especially in America, just kind of like put back out into society without any sort of transition or, you know, um, and they're and they're so far removed from society in prison that it's oftentimes kind of a shock yeah. when they first come out. Um, I think... Um, Another great example uh, is Finland, where some of the inmates are sent to these labor camps, which sounds ominous, but isn't. Um, and they're, not, it's not, yeah. not like that. Okay. But, um, <laughs> so, like, at these camps, they get a normal wage um, for, you know, the work that they do. Um, they can, you know, with those wages, they pay, they can pay for their own expenses. So, like, food, utilities, they pay taxes even. Um, and, like... One of the cool things about it is that sometimes um, these individuals can save up money and provide for their families while they're in prison. Um, there's even been some cases where um, they've provided financial compensation to the families of their victims. So I think that, um, you know, ideas like that are really great because it gives um, inmates this feeling like they're doing something, I guess, useful with um, the time that they're spending in prison and it gives them this sense of like, I don't know what exactly the right word for it is. Well, but worth. I think worth. Yeah. Is worth. Um, um, yeah. Like, and 
Um, I don't know if you have something you want to. Well, I mean, I, 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 I agree. I think, I think worth is, I mean, part of it, but like statutorily, like even like in the United States, again, we, we, we talked about voting earlier, but like felons that come out of prison have a hard time getting benefits from, I mean, so first off, they, they have a hard time getting a job because there's such a stigmatization against people that, um, have already paid their debt to society and now still can't get a job because for some reason they still have to pay. I mean, this, this, that's the crazy part, right? Like even in a punitive system, theoretically you would have a punitive system that maybe doesn't rehabilitate. And then once people are out, you know, they should be able to get a job or do mm-hmm. something on their own merit. Cause they did, they paid their debt. I mean, yeah. what Harvard didn't something like this happen at Harvard. Harvard had admitted a, uh, some woman to uh it wasn't undergraduate but it was it was maybe it was but it was a it was a, you know a program here at harvard i think it was like a, a degree program here at mm-hmm. harvard um and she she might have murdered her mom i think that was the deal um and served her time and then was coming out and then i think there was some outrage for it and then mm-hmm. she, they just said oh no it's like sorry like we're gonna revoke that like no, that's that's super. I don't know. This is we're trying to make this a clean show, guys. But yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's wrong. That's that's wrong. That it, it fundamentally like it, it it violates even it's it's self contradictory. Even if you have a punitive system, I mean, Katie, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, you know, I I, I kind of want to draw back um, a bit um, and 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 refocus around the question of why the U.S. penal system. Um, is so different comparatively um, to other systems around the world. Um, yeah. You know that there is this um, there is this fact that the United States has less than five percent of the world's population, yet we have almost twenty five percent of the world's <laughs> yeah. total mm-hmm. prison population. Um, and this is despite the fact that crime today is at a historic low. Um, and so I, I think this points us back to historical moments in our nation's. Um, uh, nation society that led to overpopulated prisons um, and individuals serving sentences far beyond their grade. Um, and so I think about uh, moments of time we pointed to before, like the war on drugs, the war on crime, and these periods of time where um, federal, state, and local governments spent more money um, to combat um, this, um, this 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 crisis um, um, as they saw it. Um, 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 this kind of Counterculture, and and then there we saw um, the rise of mandatory sentencing guidelines, and all of this. So uh, you know, I think currently we're in the space where um, we are attempting to downsize the prison system. Um, you know, this is this is seemingly or has been, particularly the Obama administration, a, a project. Um, but I, I think comparatively, um, this is an opportunity for us to reflect on. The cultural and racial con- context that the U.S.'s penal um, history has evolved within, yeah. right? Um, and I think I think analyzing these moments, um, uh, reflecting on on this history, is how we formulate um, um, proactive solutions um, um, or ways to move forward to, to rectify this inconsistency um, um, between um, the U.S. Um, and other countries. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think something that like it, like our prison at least our prison population but also there are sentencing laws as we as we already mentioned like it it's it's i think part of the the main reason that we have such a large prison population and we're we're, we're so okay with 
the status quo as is, or a lot of people are, um, it is because it's racial. I mean, there's there's also a reason why you might have there's no cultural uh, or culturally in, in homogeneous nations like Norway or Sweden or Finland or other European Western nations. Um, they're more okay with a rehabilitative um, method rather than a punitive. And that's, I think a lot of that devolves into tribalism, racism, uh, certainly a racist past um, in the United States uh, and a racist present. (laughs) Uh, And I I think that's also why, I mean, so what's also interesting is now you have this, uh, a concerted push from some on the right to also help with criminal justice reform. I mean, they see it, as a as a fiscal issue, I mean, I think that's a little dehumanizing, but I mean, to them it is a fiscal issue, you know, like, oh, we don't want our state paying for all this, da, 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 which is, you know, fair enough. But, um, like, at the same time, so you have that vein of the Republican Party of conservatism, and then you have the Jeff Sessions, uh, you know, Trump type, which is, I, I think the, the distinction between them falls along like where do you fall on race issues right (laughs) right i mean like why is jeff sessions okay with terrible prison conditions why is jeff sessions so anti-crime why does he think like what what do you say like oh i thought the kkk was okay until i found out they smoke marijuana wasn't that like like what where where do all these 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 cultural biases come from and some of it comes from the south just in general but like i think a lot of it comes from racism right (laughs) right well in terms fiscally in terms of the prison system specifically um because i think um uh, individuals regardless of their party affiliation um might have some concern about the cost of the cost of crime um you know i think we can return again to the idea that recidivism or the return of individuals um um into uh, uh the prison complex or the reoccurrence of crime um um, you know, these things are costly as well. So again, rehabilitation within prisons, making sure that individuals are not um, 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 interacting cyclically um, uh, yeah. because of the structure is incredibly important. And I think that's something that um, 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 d- uh, Democrats are aware of and can get behind. Yeah. I think I think a lot, and to kind of wrap everything up, I think a lot of it, again, I mean, recidivism, part of it's how you, how you, treat people while they're in the system right but at the same time i think a a big component of it's like how do you treat them when they get out um i mean giving people skills and uh you know marketable skills um to go out into the world with is is one thing but i mean if if employers aren't going to hire them anyways even if they do have marketable skills what use is that right um destigmatizing the the prison system, particularly when so much of it has to do with, you know, like possession of marijuana or uh, uh, drugs, which is, I mean, particularly when it's possession and not possession uh, or with intent of distribution, like these are just people that were either had using drugs uh, recreationally or, or using it, might have been addicts, um, and you're essentially criminalizing uh, a health issue or, or poverty or again something recreational um so so and I, I this is a cultural question right i mean part of it's statutory right you can i know like 
um, Cornell Brooks at the uh, the former CEO of the NAACP. When he was here, he was telling us not only about his his work trying to so so when prisoners actually like to call their parents, like they have to call collect, and it's like they have to pay like enormous sums just to talk with the relatives. Like when I say enormous, like what like something like $15 like a minute. Like it's ridiculous. Like no, no one, no one would ever pay this unless you're maybe like Mitt Romney or something like that. But like no, no one else, like no of normal means would, couldn't even afford this. Um, so besides that work, he's also talked about work to reduce or legally restrict employers ability to see if like it's, if like it's a nonviolent offense um, to have that, in their records because i mean at the end of the day they they might just not get hired and that's that's incredibly unfortunate and also like if you're poor and you also can't get access to the welfare system the, the limited welfare system we have here in the united states i wouldn't even call it welfare um you you're just you're probably going to resort to to crime or something something that's going to be able to sustain you um you know so that you can you can go on and continue and try to live. Um, and I, it's incredibly unfortunate. It's an incredibly unfortunate racialized um, reality in the United States of America. But um, with that, I think we'll transition um, into our interview with Naomi Vickers, who again is a uh, activist from Hope, and will be um, talking to us about both her thoughts on the criminal justice system and um, where she sees the arc of activism and uh, future legislation heading, and then also her um, own work as well as the organization's work on advocating for change and helping to uh, educate prisoners. Hey everybody, welcome back. Um, so today I am joined with uh, or by Naomi Vickers. Um, she is a member of Hope, and Hope is uh, the Harvard Organization for Prison uh, Education and Reform, and it's one of the many organizations here at the uh, Phillips Bro- Philip Brooks um, Associate or House Association (PBHA), uh, which is like a, a public uh, works association here on campus. Um, thank you for joining us with today, Naomi. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so can you explain to us kind of what HOPE is and what the mission of HOPE is? Yeah, so there are lots of different um, segments of HOPE and different places to volunteer. So there's the like direct action part, there's the advocacy part. Um, so I'm more involved in the former of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so HOPE volunteers go to juvenile detention centers or adult prisons to mentor and tutor uh, the people at those facilities. So both with, especially for the younger kids, life skills uh, or GED, which is, I mean, high set, which is your GED like program mm-hmm. here in Massachusetts, stuff like that. Um, but also hard, like, you know, academic skills, but also more of the life skills, mentoring, that sort of thing. Cool. That's awesome. So uh, I'm curious, what kind of impact do you feel that y- you've had while at Hope? What brought you to Hope? Can you kind of explain that backstory? Yeah, um, I'm from Richmond, Virginia, which is a really segregated city, former uh, capital of the Confederacy. And, you know, (laughs) our main street, Monument Avenue, like huge statues (laughs) to Confederate soldiers. So that's, you know, I'm growing up as a black woman in in that environment. You definitely notice the 
um, discrepancies between, you know, poverty rates, incarceration rates, stuff like that. And you cannot um, visit a prison until you are 18 unless you have a direct link, like a family member there. Mm -hmm. So I knew, you know, in high school that like this was the work that I wanted to be doing because, Mm -hmm. you know, whenever you have rates like one in three black men going to prison or in Virginia, what is it, one in five black people cannot vote because they're disenfranchised felons. So when you're growing up, seeing that, hearing that, like you you can't ignore it. Um, But I couldn't, you know, be directly as involved as I wanted to because of those requirements, which are very purposeful. Like they don't want the general population (laughs) just um, (laughs) being able to see, you know, the the injustice that's (laughs) happening. So I was thrilled when I got this opportunity. That's awesome. Um, so can you, uh, explain also about the advocacy portion of hope, um, what you guys specifically are advocating for, what you want to see done or changed in America's prison system and also the the sentencing? Yeah. One of the best advocacy events so far, um, was the beyond the gates conference and hope was a big part of putting that together. Um, and one of the best things that they said was, you know, while a lot of us are prison abolitionists, so in the long run, this is not a system that we want to see put in place, both because of its, you know, links to slavery, the reasons why it was founded, because, you know, two thirds, yeah, yeah, I think two thirds of uh, inmates are like likely to, um, you know, commit crime, be incarcerated again. Mm-hmm. It's just a system that's failing. So while many of us are prison abolitionists, a key, like we cannot just leave the people that are in there right now with with nothing. So that's where hope, you know. Organization mm-hmm. for Prison Education and Reform. So it's both of them. Um, so mm-hmm. we're advocating for, you know, legislation that changes the current state of prisons, but also looking towards a future that is less reliant on prisons. Mm-hmm. So I guess a, a question I have is, do you feel that, I mean, I'm sure you'd agree with both, but um, which is a more pressing issue in the sense that, like, you have right now a prison system that is structured in the United States to be punitive and you know, non-rehabilitative in the sense that there is very little in place right now um, to actually take tangible steps and goals to reducing recidivism rates and also making sure that when prisoners uh, leave prison and re-enter society, they can be productive members of society, be active citizens, and um, not face stigmatization based on their merits. But then you also have, just in general, um, the United States prison system is particularly cruel in the sense that the, the conditions that people are subjected to are, you know, they're not comparable to prisons within other Western nations. They're over, there's overcrowding. There's cruelty on the uh, behalf of the prison wardens and police uh, or officers that are there um, keeping them under lock and key. Uh, the food and, and other conditions, the living conditions are incredibly poor. So, um, we, I mean, Hope's obviously advocating for a broad range of issues, but uh, which do you personally see as as uh, more pressing and something that's maybe more remedial in the uh, you know next decade or two? I would say the 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 laws that lead people to being incarcerated in the first place. Mm-hmm. That that's the first thing that I think of, but the second one is the unpaid labor aspect of it, which is a little more um, subtle. F- for the for the common eye um so with regards to the first part you know if we're what was it the 1994 bill clinton's crime bill that then led to this like quadrupling of the prison population (laughs) in like 20 years something something crazy like that yeah and like 60 percent of that increase was like black people even though we make up like 14 percent of the population Mm -hmm. so it's these obvious like inequalities and discrepancies because oh key part of that that i didn't that i failed to mention 
um, like two thirds of that increase was like due to um, uh, increased drug arrest, mm-hmm. but black and white drug use is the same, yeah. like percentage wise. So yeah. we see these huge increases, and that's what leads to the people getting into the jail, uh, get, yeah, getting incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So not just because you know black people are more likely to be criminal, because that's I don't know if we're allowed to curse, but that is a curse. Crappy. Do it away. <laughs> Bro, great. Okay, that is some <laughs> bullshit right there. Yeah. Um, um, so, so, so I feel like we have to be focusing on the actual laws that get this to happen in the first place because yeah. we don't have to do anything to change the people. It is not the people's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then secondly, once once they're in prison, you know, the fact that they're working for like a cent a day or like a cent yeah. an hour, these crazy things that, you know, has been kept so well kept under wraps. Like yeah. so few people know about that aspect mm-hmm. of it. And that's the really unjust part. And a lot of it, there has been more um, attention on this ever since that uh, documentary, Ava DuVernay's uh, 13th. Such Maybe. a good show. Yes. <laughs> so good. Everyone so good. should go see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, it's, and this shows the link between my two points because, you know, it's the 13th Amendment that says, you know, we're abolishing slavery except as a punishment for a crime. Yeah. So it's both that legal part and then what those laws allow them to, to do to the people unjustly while they're in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's an interest. It's interesting that they like specifically carved out that exception to um, which gives them I mean, it gives them like ample resources on the legal side to argue for what they're doing and uh, codify it within the law. But. Um, when you do have a, a, a system that's so racialized and like blatantly racialized and it's like in its application um, towards forcing Latinos and uh, black people into the system and then exploiting their labor and then releasing them to not be able to vote. <laughs> like it, it's, it, it's, it's crazy how that, that cycle, um, how it's even okay in some people's minds or how it's justified. Um, you know, you, you'll routinely get uh uh, I mean, Fox News is obviously awful, awful, but like the general conservative, um, you know, media sphere, uh, either justifying this or um, saying, you know, this is just patently false things like, oh, black people and Latinos, like there's just way, way more crime in these areas, um, which is particularly when it comes to drug use is just false. <laughs> like, in fact, it's like in some, depending on the drug, but um a lot of there's a lot of drugs in which wealthier white people use at much higher rates than than uh, African Americans or Latinos or um, poor people. Um, I, I guess so, some another thing to to kind of close this off is um, where like so what is Hope working on specifically right now? Are there any uh, like projects in the works or, or um, events that they plan on holding? And then also um, what what's the uh, where do you see with like the upcoming young generation um, taking things uh, on the legal side through political advocacy to help uh, reform a prison system and then also to help reform those laws that you were mentioning. Right. Um, for Hope's upcoming projects, I think April is the month where they do the um, uh, solitary confinement protest where they make a box like out of duct tape, like that's seven by 11, mm-hmm. and they have just rotating people for the entire day, like sitting in that box, not speaking, but with a sign that says, you know, this is the the um, parameters of like a solitary confinement cell like this is what people have to go through every day like no human interaction no food no water for like crazy amounts of time only outside for like an hour so I know I've they've told us about I'm a freshman so I haven't experienced that protest before but Mm -hmm. they've done it for a couple of years now so I'm pretty sure April is when that happens again and I'm really looking forward to to seeing the impact of that Um, and then as for the upcoming generation Mm Uh, changes a lot from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, what the upcoming generation is going to look like. But yeah. 
Yeah. I do think there's increasing awareness of the problem, but awareness doesn't always lead to action. Yeah. So I'm Yeah. And you know, considering the the oppression of black people for was it 400 years now like yeah. in america i don't i'm not particularly <laughs> this sounds very not yeah. hopeful yeah. I, i'm not i'm I'm just mm. skeptical right <laughs> i i think there's so much potential with the you know the books that are coming out now the the academics the grassroots movements like the people yeah. on the ground there there are people working to change this they are increasing awareness mm-hmm. and i think you know that will lead to some sort of change, but it'll be a long, long time, I think, before anything that is, you know, actual justice comes about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that somber note, <laughs> thank you for joining us today, Naomi. Yeah, thank you. And with that, I think we'll end the episode. Um, but thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Um, next time, we're looking to cover the foreign policy debate happening within the Democratic Party. Uh, between a more isolationist strain of uh, policy advocates and then also a more involved um, strain of, po- of policy advocates um, concerning uh, you know, diplomatic relations, foreign policy, and diplomacy. But uh, you can find us on Twitter at Harvard uh, Dems or on Facebook at Harvard College Democrats. Uh, thank you for tuning in and uh, you know, give us five stars on iTunes, subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, And we hope you come next time. Thanks.